And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot podcast network. The HubSpot podcast network has other great podcasts you should go check out, like Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Now, with the holidays just around the corner, you're probably thinking, what's next for you in the new year? What other shows are you going to listen to to level yourself up? Well, on the Success Story podcast, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, and I usually dive deep into the creative aspects of building a business. So if you are a creative, a creative business owner, or you're thinking about eventually becoming one, which at some point everybody kind of has to be because you have to be a little bit creative in how you build a business, how you market a business, and how you sell your product, all of that does require some creativity, but also for people that are hyper-focused on the creative niche. You may be interested in Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Being Boss is an exploration of not only what it means, but what it takes to be a boss as a creative business owner. If you are into some of the following topics, you're gonna love this show. Project management and building systems for creatives, freelancers, or side hustlers, opening a retail store, rituals that inspire and evoke creativity, and taking time off as a business owner to focus on yourself, your creativity, and upskilling, You need to listen to Being Boss. They cover all these topics and more. You can listen to Being Boss on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or at HubSpot.com slash podcast network. Today, my guest is David Morgan. David is a widely recognized analyst in the precious metals industry and consults for hedge funds, high net worth investors, mining companies, depositories, and bullion dealers. He is the publisher of The Morgan Report, a world-class publication designed to build and secure wealth. He is the author of the Silver Manifesto and a featured speaker at investment conferences worldwide. He has appeared on CNBC, Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, MSNBC, and BNN. He has also been interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Futures Magazine, uh, The Investing Rulebook, and numerous other publications. Today, we spoke about money, finance, everything that's happened over the past two years. Some of the topics we went into, the greatest wealth transfer in history is starting to unfold. Are you going to be on the sidelines or are you going to take part in it? The greatest depression in history is looming. But what does that mean? Can gold make you rich even in one of the worst depressions in history? We spoke about gold, silver. We spoke about crypto. Uh, we spoke about Bitcoin, 
Could money be worthless in six months? Uh, how close is the price of silver linked to gold? How American billionaires got even richer during the pandemic? Why raising taxes destroys the economy? Uh, and whether or not he's even optimistic that the American dream is still alive. It's a very heavy episode, a lot of lessons to be learned that have come over the past two years, but he's been studying this industry for a lifetime. So an incredible interview, just an incredible, just an incredible uh, man who has tried to understand and help people how to best navigate complex investments, markets, finances, and obviously at this point in history coming out of a pandemic, that's more critical than ever for all of us. So let's jump right into this. This is David Morgan, widely recognized analyst and publisher of The Morgan Report. Hi, Scott. Well, first, thanks for inviting me. Uh, the Origin uh, I've said it many times, but it bears repeating. I was 11 years old when the coinage uh, went from 90% silver coins to what I call the Johnson slugs. And I noticed that and it intrigued me, but it didn't seem to bother too many of the adults around me. So I kind of held that, you know, in the back of my mind, so to speak. Uh, went through um, the normal teenage years, high school, all that frustration. And uh, my dad was very tough as far as, you know, career choices. And I really wanted to get in the financial markets. He blew up and said, no, you don't want to do that. So I decided I wanted to fly for a living. So I started flying when I was 16, uh, went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, graduated with a degree in aeronautics engineering. But the markets were my passion. And I was investing in the stock market at 16. And I just kept studying on my own, uh, you know, market, market history, money, finance, investing, all that stuff. So it was kind of my advocation all through, you know, from 16 years on. So I had a, an aircraft career for a while, simultaneously was basically focusing on the banking system and honest money because it was pretty apparent to me that um, the system was a rigged one. In other words, uh, once you went off the gold standard, uh, you had problems. And I was following every newsletter writer at the time that I could find. So I was a newsletter junkie. So I really was immersed in the uh, in the precious metals from a very early time. Uh, left the aircraft industry and started working for a certified financial planner. I uh, saw how that whole operation worked. I was displeased with it because it's not as objective as I would like it to be. You are basically given certain companies to kind of push out to your clients for various reasons. I'll leave that to the uh, viewers' imaginations. Uh, then I went and briefly worked on a um, selling coins, believe it or not, for a very brief time. Again, the uh, proprietor was um, in the larger markup variety, pushing more of these semi-numi coins, which I abhor because it really rips the, the client off. So I left there very shortly after finding out what the uh, the main thrust of the business was. Traded for a living for a while. I uh, took care of uh, two baby girls and uh, started a website on research, primarily on the silver market. Oh, I left out part of the story. Went back to school and got a degree in finance and economics. And during that, I'd already been self-taught quite a bit. And the finance teachers referred to me as a silver expert, which is the first time I'd ever been referred to as a silver expert. <laughs> and so um, started basically a research site on the web very early on. Back in the early days of the web, where all you got was a C prompt with a carrot 
or C prompt. And then you had to find a BBC, I think it was called, or BB some bulletin board. There weren't any really websites even at that time, but I established one very early on again for research. And then I was asked, you know, what does, and I used the Silver Guru as a, as a placeholder for a, a Hotmail email account, basically. But, you know, it stuck. And uh, some guy asked me what the Silver Guru does. And I told him I write a newsletter, which, of course, I really didn't, but I wanted to. And that started the business <laughs> rolling. So that's how I basically got in. And again, it's a passion. It's more about uh, honest money, honest systems, fair and financial freedom throughout the marketplace, especially a real free market where the participants determine what the true value of something is on a daily minute, you know, a, a minute basis, an hourly basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, take it how you wish, but without, you know, this uh, control mechanism that's been employed for years and years and years. So long story, I hope it helps, but that's kind of it. I got rid of my passion. Oh, tease it up. I yeah. Had an air, aircraft career, which is very exciting and lots of stories. I won't go there, but I, I'm glad I got to experience what I did to get to where I needed to get to. And I will say one thing for the engineering nerd community, without my strong engineering background, I don't think my economic thinking would be as clear as it is. And I say that with a bit of pride. I don't, I'm not a proud man, but focusing on fact is very, very important in any endeavor, and especially in the economic sphere where there's so much uh, nonsense that's accepted as dogma by the community when it's completely proven to be false. So what is, let's, let's describe a couple terms, and then I want to also understand also the, the, stuff that you study and speak about and why you are in precious metals and why you are in silver in particular, we can go down that road as well. I want to understand that. But first, describe what is honest money? What does that mean? Let the, somebody who's not involved in financial markets, they're investing just as a casual side, you know, a hobby, whatnot. What does honest money mean? Well, it is, it could be used as a, as a metaphor. Honest money is the idea that there's ownership value of money and that it is intrinsic and has value of itself. Now, you can make the argument that, you know, gold is just a rock that's been refined. It's shiny, but does it really hold intrinsic value? I won't go there. Uh, we have 5,000 years of history that people, when they're free to decide for themselves, have always coveted gold, silver, and really copper as well as monetary assets, or at least units of trade. And I don't think anyone can argue that the physicality of a round disc of a certain mass is uh, a way that you can exchange or barter for other goods and services. So the market's really determined what honest money is. Dishonest money is something that's either a derivative of that, which is a piece of paper, a certificate, or a digital form that represents that, but in actuality isn't it. And then a full fiat system is basically nothing more than the power of force, where a government can force a certain legal tender law that you must accept the following basically intrinsically worthless unit of account for daily transaction and usually for tax payment. So that's kind of a brief look at honest money. And and if we even if we teed up like Moving away from a gold standard is recent. That's Nixon in 71, if I'm not mistaken. That was when we moved off the gold standard. So that people who are 
older, they they recognize the difference and they recognize there was a gold standard at one point, but younger individuals, it's just always been pure fiat. So um, what what has been the result of, of moving off the gold standard? Um, what have you, what, you know, we speak about fiat and uh, legally imposed money system. It's the only money system many people know. So what has been the result? What has been the implication of that? And how do we, how do we actually, I'll let you go off that first. And then I have a couple of follow up. Well, the result is very predictable. If you look at monetary history, even at a cursory level, basically when you have nothing, that's a policeman on the currency. In other words, when you have a gold standard or better yet, a primary bimetallic or trimetallic standard, you're limited in the amount that you can produce the, you know, how much more can you get per year out of the, out of the ground. And in gold is roughly one and a half percent a year. So uh, the money supply does expand, but in a true honest money system or a gold standard or gold silver standard, what you have is uh, the ability to expand the economy, but at, let's say a more modest rate, but it doesn't mean because the rate is determined by the money supply. But that doesn't mean you couldn't expand as rapidly as we have. Somewhat arguably that you wouldn't be able to expand because it'd be more prudent on the loan side. There wouldn't be a lot of, you know, well, it's just funny money anyway. Here, take this amount and see if you can make that project happen or not. There'd be a little more, you know, substance to the loan situations. Having said all that, we are in a situation now where the ladder's taking hold and we're printing ourselves into oblivion. And that's the point. The point is that every time you go on a full fiat system, you start to see the money is worth less. And it's not that noticeable. And a decade later, it's worth less. And it's somewhat noticeable. And a decade after that, it's worth a lot less than 1971. And then it turns to be worthless or moving toward worthless. So you go from worthless to worthless to worthless. And that's a history that cannot be denied. Fiat, full fiat systems have a 100% failure rate. Does that mean the US dollar is going to absolute zero? And it's it's almost 100% guaranteed it won't. (laughs) But it'll get close enough, there'll be enough fear in the marketplace that there will be either a new monetary system enacted, which I believe will be the case, or they'll give up on the currency and there'll be a currency replacement. There's lots of options. So the dollar will never go to what the Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe did, in my view. And all yeah. inflations end in deflation. And that's an important point to remember that, you know, let's say you got a million dollars in the bank. And right now, today, as we're doing the interview, Scott, you know, you can get so many automobiles, one big million dollar house or whatever. But as a thought experiment, let's say over the next month to accelerate our thinking, it drops in half every week. So a week goes by, it only buys a half a million in goods. The week after that, it only buys uh, 250,000 in goods. A week after that, it's 125,000. And a week after that, you're looking at, you know, 75,000 or 50,000 ish in that range. And all of a sudden, you know, you realize that I've got to spend this stuff as fast as I can. So when it goes to zero, you're in a deflationary mode. I mean, you're going to look for something that actually has value. If this currency doesn't, what does? And in those instances, several times in times past, it's been the primary precious metals. 
The banks know all this. They're not ignorant about it. They're not ever going to say it in a public forum. And if they do mention it at all, which Alan Greenspan has done a few times when he was chairman of the Federal Reserve, it's a very subtle mention, and it's really not nearly as straightforward as what I'm talking about. But they will allude to the fact that paper currencies fail, that you could be paid your Social Security check, but what you can't guarantee is what it will purchase. Well, that's that's what's that's what's screwing over younger generations now because now everything's going up in price. Like I, so if you look at the major cities, so I'm originally from Toronto. Well, I'm 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 Canadian. I'm from Toronto, and uh, you can't buy a detached home for less than two million dollars. And there's other there's other issues that are are stopping that. But I mean, the the average, I think I think to live in Toronto, you have to make about two hundred k to be considered middle wow. class. $200,000 a year to be considered middle class. And the salaries are not just, the people are not just handing out $200,000 salaries. And that carries over into everything. So now you see, now we're starting to see the effects in, ma in major urban areas for sure. Maybe, maybe less so in like smaller, uh, in smaller cities where life seems more affordable, but it obviously it impacts everybody. So what's, so what's the fix for this? Like, you know, we try and we print money, right? We print money to, you know, to to help the economy when COVID happens, to keep up with you know foreign entities that are also printing money, and to and to maintain that pace. So, what's the alternative to this? Well, let me speak at that, and you can uh, re-ask the question. Uh, I just listened to uh, Mr. Ackerman, Rick Ackerman from uh, that's I think he's still in the Bay Area. I met him through a mutual friend a long time ago. The guy that I introduced me was a uh, actual day trader for a firm. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Playbook. Now, what is Playbook? Playbook is an app that gets to know your unique financial situation and helps you get the most out of every dollar you save. The best part, you don't have to do any crazy budgeting or change a single thing about your lifestyle. So if you're just making money, but you're not sure what to do with it, Playbook is the app for you. For the average user, Playbook helps boost their net worth by over 1.3 million dollars. Playbook tells you which tax advantaged accounts that you need, how much money to put into each one of them, and automates all of these investment processes for you. It's rare that you find a finance app that thinks about your finances as a whole. This includes your taxes, your savings, and your life goals. It was super simple to set up. I just set up all my accounts and then I set my preferences as to where I want to put my money and then it's on autopilot. So I can be investing in my Roth IRA and my travel fund or my new new car fund or my wedding fund or my kids education fund all in one spot. And on top of that, because it can forecast where I'm going to be in 10, 20, 30 years, I know exactly how much money I'm going to have when I do want to retire or when I'm going to actually hit those milestones in my life financially because I've set up these automatic contributions. So if you want to get on the road to financial freedom, go to helloplaybook.com slash Scott. You can immediately predict when you can finally stop working. You don't even have to sign up for the service yet. You get a free playbook impact that's going to predict your net worth if you follow the guidelines that they set out for you. So remember, go to helloplaybook.com slash Scott. That's your special link for a free assessment and basically roadmap for your future net worth. Sign up for Playbook today so you can enjoy financial freedom and beyond. Anyway, uh, he just did this interview and talked about C.V. Myers in the bookcase behind me in the middle part up there. Probably have almost every book ever written by Mr. Myers. He wrote, he's long deceased. Lived in Spokane, by the way, at one time. Was Canadian. Moved to Spokane. 
um, and wrote several books. And he wrote probably the preeminent newsletter. Remember, I told you I was a newsletter junkie back in my 20s. Yeah. He wrote Myers Finance and Energy. And from my perspective, it stood out. There were a few writers that really stood out. He was one of them. And what he talked about was, and this is from Rick's interview that was just very recent, but all debts are paid, which means that you loan the money and you lose because you made a bad loan. So your million-dollar loan on that house that the mortgage holder could not pay in that case, you get the house back. So that's not a really good example. So you make a million dollar loan based on a signature saying that, Scott, I trust you, I'll pay you back. You can't. So the person or entity that loaned that million dollars just paid for it. It's gone. It evaporates into monetary heaven, as Jim Dines used to say. Or on another loan of a million dollars, someone takes Linda and Linda pays back the loan. But the money that's involved is, as we know from finance or accounting, double entry bookkeeping. One asset is a liability of somebody else, but the money exists. So when the money is produced or the currency is produced by the loan, in a free market, if you make a bad loan, you have to pay the price. So you lose. Hey, I saved up $10,000. I'm going to loan it to the government. I'm going to buy this bond. And then the government says those bonds are invalid. Now, I'm not talking about the U.S., although I could be, but I'm not. I'm going to use like bonds of the Civil War, for example. Uh, you put yeah. up the cash. And well, who, who paid? Well, the cash buyer of the bond paid for the bond, and it was worthless. So that money is gone uh, for that person. But that money did go to the person that issued the bond. And what did they do? They bought munitions with it or whatever. So anyway, I'm probably belaboring the point. But the idea is that there could be, as I said earlier, a lot of deflation when these housing prices come down because the market usually meets the conditions at hand, which means if the average person in Toronto is making, I'll make up a number, 80000 a year. And 200,000 is required to buy a house. Well, the housing prices will probably come down or salaries go up. I don't think the salaries will go up this time. As Rick pointed out in his interview back in the late 70s and 80s, it's called cost push inflation. I think that's the term. That's what I remember. But wages kept increasing. I remember when I started my aircraft job, my first check I got, I was a little uptight because it was greater than the contract I'd signed. And so I was, you know, 22 and kind of kind of scared in a big corporation. I asked one of the um, people that had been there a while, I said, I don't get it. This is actually, oh, don't worry about that. That's cola. What's cola? Is that something you drink? That's a cost of living adjustment. Every so often, there'll be a cost of living adjustment. Your wages will go up based on the inflation rate. So I just happened to be in that sweet spot where the COLA contract demanded that we got an increase. Well, that's not happening this time. So you're not going to see the wages go. You might in a few cases here and there, but you're not going to see it enacted like it was uh, when I was young. I really, really doubt that. So you've got static wages or lower wages with an increasing cost of things that are needed, like food and energy. 
So you get a real squeeze in what's called stagflation. Really, everything that you need costs more, and wages are static or going down. So it really puts the hurt on the middle class, pretty much eliminates the middle class over time. I mean, look, I don't know what you make. I'm not interested. I'm interested in you as a person, not as, you know, I want to be happy, healthy, and, and wise and free. Yeah. But, you know, your income level isn't as important to me it is to you that the type of person you are and whether or not you're being treated in a manner by society that's cognizant with the ability that you have. And it's not. You already stated, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, Scott, and you can retract anything I'm saying, but, you know, we're in an unjust system that is skewed to a few at the expense of the many. Well, I, I don't think that's inaccurate. I don't think that's an inaccurate thing to say. I think that if we just look at uh, like what people experience and the debts that they have and the uh, the like you just you I like the way you put it is your is your compensation in line with your cognizant or, or your contribution to society? Is it in line in the same manner that it was 50 years ago? And it's not. It's it's just not. Like you just can't make any argument for the fact. Now maybe we can say we can argue about uh, opportunity, and you know we can look at different ways to make money. But then, but I wouldn't say that's fair because then that means you're doing more. You're you're leveraging certain vehicles that weren't around. That's fine. But that's that's not the first job with just a high school education being able to buy a detached single family home. That's you just hustling and figuring out other ways to make money because you just want to push yourself to the next level. And you can't expect everyone to do that. It's not reasonable to expect everyone to have to do that. People have different priorities. Not everybody wants to work 80-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks just to buy a home and get that, you know, white picket fence life. I don't think that's I fair. agree. And if um, I can just jump in a little bit more. I mean, if you remember yeah. I was 11 when we went off, you know, circulating silver. I mean, my dad, when I was, you know, I had two in our family, me and my sister, he worked, my mother never did. He made about 5000 a year when I was like a three, four, five-year-old kid. On 5000 consider it silver dollars, which would be about 4,000 ounces a year, was able to buy a house in the Bay Area, in Tiburon, actually, which is one of the most exclusive areas in the Bay Area right now. If you don't know that, I'm just throwing it out there sort of like a Beverly Hills in Southern California. Yeah. So I bought a house in Tiburon, had, I think, only one car at the time. We had two cars later as I grew up. But here's the, here's the deal. I'm just making the comparison to where you sit right now, Scott, with probably roughly equal ability, drive, ambition, honesty, everything else of, of my father. And there you sit with uh, a whole different system, whereas my dad, again, was able to provide very well for our family for his entire you know, life or my entire, let's say, childhood to adulthood when I left at you know, 18 to go to college. That's a dream that we won't see again for a very, very long time. I mean, it was probably my generation. So 20 years later, where I had a very good lifestyle, it was pretty equal to my father's, except there's one huge difference. My wife worked at a professional job. So I had a job that was required a college degree. And my wife had a job that required a high skill set as a dental hygienist. And we lived about the same lifestyle. However, I'll repeat, 
It took two incomes to do that. Yeah, and now and now we're at the point where it's not just two incomes because now two incomes it, for, for most people eighty thousand dollars is a great salary. That's a good salary, you know. Out of out of university, eighty thousand bucks. That's that's a decent salary. You have two of those now, one hundred and sixty k. That means in Toronto, use that use case study again. You can't buy a home yeah. yet unless you get a unless you get a handout, yeah. right? Anyway, it's so another point you bring up, which I thought was interesting. Um, the greatest depression in history is looming, but you still say that gold can make you rich. Those are two. That's a that's a two opposite ends of this. So walk me through what what's well, what's happening. I hope in the I next, didn't say gold can make you rich. I have at times said silver could make you rich. Gold, <laughs> gold is, uh, preserves your wealth. So gold actually does okay. better in the deflation. And I'm not going to argue it. If you want to argue it, do some research. Uh, the best book on gold's ability to maintain purchasing power or value is written by uh, Professor Roy S. Jastrom called The Golden Constant. And he shows in that book that gold does best in deflation. So I wouldn't say it can, in certain times, it could get overvalued and make you quote unquote rich. Most of the time it's done, what it's actually done during this inflationary fiasco we've been in for the last two decades. Gold started in 2000 at 252. It's currently around 1800. It's had a compounded annual growth rate of 10%. And the real inflation rate by shadowstats.com, my friend John Williams, is about 9%. So gold has preserved your wealth. If you put your $252 into gold in 2000, and now it's worth 1800 in fiat and US terms, you have maintained your wealth. You have not gone down. You have maintained or maybe increased slightly. So that's gold's function. It's performed it quite well. And I may be guilty of this. Uh, I don't mean to be, but, you know, looking back and being honest with myself, trying to be, you know, I might have given off the idea of, you know, these explosive moves. And I have said silver especially does spike high and spike low. And gold did the same thing at the end of the inflationary scare. I mean, we really thought, or at least overstudied people like me, thought in 1979 to early 1980, the currency was going to fail. I admit it. That's what I thought. We saw you know, inflation going to 13% officially. We saw prices being marked up almost daily. We know that inflation could cause a currency crisis. Looks like we were in one. And actually, I would argue we were. And then they had a very strong Fed chairman named Paul Volcker that came in and said, I'll fix it. I'll put interest rates around 20%. And for my overstudy view and knowledge of monetary history, that's mafia money. That's the kind of money you get on a street loan when you're down, uh, down and out and you've got to borrow money to pay your uncle because you're going to break <laughs> your legs if you don't. You'll accept a 20% interest rate. But the U.S. government, we're done. Well, I was completely wrong. We weren't done. It was the beginning of the greatest bond market move in ever. And uh, as you know, as uh, bond prices, as interest rates go down, bond prices go up. So people that bought the 30-year back then enjoyed whatever the exact amount was, 17.5% interest. Uh, and the bonds kept getting higher and higher and higher priced. But now we're at the point where whenever something doesn't cost much, it really doesn't have much value. 
So a zero interest bond isn't really that valuable if you think about it philosophically. I'm not thinking about it in numbers terms. I'm thinking about it from a philosophical or let's say um, an Austrian perspective where if it doesn't cost anything, how much how much value does it have? If it yields nothing, I mean, if you bought, uh, a, you know, went to the grocery store and, and bought the grocery bag and brought it home, it's yielded you nothing. I mean, how valuable is that grocery store trip, right? <laughs> It's 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 uh, it's not the worst logic. It's not the it's not the, it's not the worst logic. Um, no, but I think that I think you know it, r- realistically what I was trying to pull out of that. I, I didn't mean to say that you were uh, oh, hyperbolic no, in your fine. in your discussions about gold. Yeah, it. it's uh, fine. But I want no, to no, no. clear. I mean, I try to be <laughs> consistent. And- I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode. It's an exciting new investment platform. I can't wait to tell you all about it called Masterwork. They are a $1 billion fintech unicorn democratizing one of the largest and oldest asset classes around high-end art billionaires have been scooping up van gogh's and monet's for decades while the rest of us have to watch from the sideline but now anyone can invest in multi-million dollar paintings thanks to a recently changed law so why should you consider investing in art well for starters Contemporary art pieces outperformed the S&P returns by 174% from 1995 to 2020. Plus, the Wall Street Journal reported that the art market is one of the hottest markets on earth right now. Masterworks has masterpieces from artists like Picasso and Warhol. Now you can invest in multi-million dollar paintings like stocks. In fact, early investors got a 32% annualized return from a Banksy painting in 2020. And now you can get in on the action. With over 250,000 members, demand is exploding. So to secure your spot in the front of the line, just head to masterworks.io slash success. I'll see you there and make sure to see important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. You know, I try not to over-exaggerate the amount of what I consider to be required exposure to the metals. And that's about 10%, maybe 20. And that's where you know, you have the people point, seem to be the most um, upset with me are the ones that never heard that statement. Although I try to make it almost every interview. But if, if there is a recession or even if you just want to set it and forget it, so to speak, Gold will be a decent store of value for that. Now let's talk about, so do you think, do you think there's going to be a recession in the next six months, 12, 12 months, five years, 10 years? Well, as far as I'm, or rather a, de- a depression, right? I guess, yeah, I guess well, recession, depression. Yeah, I, I think we're in one already. Yeah. I mean, remember what a depression is. First of all, the expression has to do with the, the uh, mood of the culture or society. They're depressed. They don't feel good. They're, and so what is it? And you can define it in several ways, but one is high unemployment. Another one is uncertainty of the future. Another one is is uh, supply, I'll say breakdown, but supply chain questions. Uh, another one is lack of goods. In other words, economic activity deteriorates. So as a corny example I've used many times, if you go into a modern supermarket in North America, as I've been in, in Mexico, Mexico's very well stocked too. But, you know, if you go to the pickle aisle, when I was, you know, 12 year old kid, I mean, when my mom went grocery shopping, it was pretty modest in those days. You know, you had Del Monte and Hunt's pickles, that was it. Now there's 40 brands, right? Or 25. They've got the, you know, crinkly 
uh, pickle that's the same size as a hamburger bun with a twist of lime. I mean, it's ridiculous. So you're going to see a lot of that go away, a lot of it, and you're going to get down to basics. So that's another um, factor or another data point that you can use to prove that we're getting toward a depression. Hard to find jobs, as I said, high unemployment, people that give up, people that will rather just, you know, take the government dole and do nothing rather than look for a job. They get discouraged, they give up, they say, you know, it's bad, they are depressed. So a lot of those factors are apparent throughout our culture, both not only in North America, but it's pretty pervasive around the world. And the food supply is decreasing, the meat supply is decreasing, the job supply is decreasing, and you have an overabundance of things that no longer work in society, such as office space. So commercial real estate really hasn't hit the hammer yet, meaning that the prices of most commercial real estate uh, on the downside is far from over. And and residential is going up in certain areas, uh, primarily in the U.S., because I can speak with some authority uh, in rural properties, not so much in the uh, large cities, although I don't have a lot of data there. I could look it up. So, Scott, we are heading in a trend. And I think more important than what I want to say just came to mind because I, you know, look at this pretty carefully. And one of the best books from my experience was um, The Collapse of Complex Societies. And this is where I have a real, real, real problem with the WEF. And that is they'll take everything down and then build it back better. The one conclusion after studying the decline of empires, the Mesopotamian, the Persian, the Mayan, the Roman, uh, all of the great empires, Byzantine, did not matter if it was war, agriculture, monetary, weather, didn't matter. There were lots of reasons why they collapsed. The point is, once they started down, they did not come back. So you take the whole world down, you wipe out the middle class, you wipe out the purchasing power, and you're going to build it back better? Good luck with that. Let me know how it goes. You're, so you're, you're, not, you're not optimistic. You're not optimistic that there's any recourse. You, uh, you don't see us moving in the right direction. And I know that, like, what are the, what are the standard ways that people try and fix, right? Like, if, the, if there's a huge deficit, they'll tax more and they'll try and get more money. They'll try and reinvest it. But I don't think that we've seen much positive from, from entities that do tax more. Or even if you look at the state of the, the United States right now, and I, again, I'm not I'm not a finance specialist. I'm not a taxation specialist. I just look. I look at the states that are doing well versus the states that aren't. So it doesn't seem like taxing. Anyway, well, go ahead. <laughs> you have thoughts. Well, I think you hit. You know, you put me in the right place under the the statement I just made, and I won't take it back. That's what I truly think. However, you know, you said, well, it's pretty bleak, and it is. But I'm also You know, the other side of the coin, so to speak, is that we've got to hit bottom before we can build back. And the build back won't be from the ruling class, although that's what they want. It'll be our own human ingenuity, our own communities that we build back. It'll probably be dispersed. I mean, I wouldn't rule out the idea that the uh, United States of America turns into a less federalist zone 
run by the District of Criminals in the Washington District and turns back to states' rights. And some of these states may say, the heck with your, you know, phony money. We don't want it. We're going back to our own, you know, statehood, which is how it's designed, by the way. So there could be a breakup within the U.S. I'm not forecasting that. I'm just throwing that as an idea. But the idea being that I think it has a lot to do, and this is a bit woo-woo, Scott, with uh, a resurgence of value and the value being spiritual. And what I mean by that is there's been a push that we've been programmed by, especially in North America, but worldwide. Everybody wants that white picket fence in the house as a metaphor for the good life. And you've been conditioned to believe what the good life is. And it primarily revolves around materialism. You know, how many cars do you have and what kind of car is it? You know, I don't need a watch. I need a watch that has this, you know, this brand on it. And all this stuff that we've been programmed that, you know, more stuff makes us happier. And that isn't true. And I had to learn that myself, like a lot of people that become successful, especially if it's fairly early. You know, you get the stuff and then and more stuff. And oh, that's not making me happy. I'll get more stuff. So I digress to come back. We, could, we need to get into what's valuable and what is valuable. Honesty, integrity, friends, community building relationships, your word is your bond, you know, real food, not phony packaged fake meat BS. I'm sorry, I'm a carnivore. I apologize. My daughter is a vegetarian, so people bear that in mind. I probably don't love anything on the planet more than my daughters. So there you have it. We need to hit bottom before we come back. Hitting bottom in some cases isn't that bad a thing. Yeah, it's a rough ride. It hurts. It's painful. But out of that, you get the, let's say, grit that's required to come back and really value what you want. Because we've been told what we want, which is more stuff, and it doesn't work. Now that stuff's been taken away, and some people are crying about it because they are addicted to stuff. Some people have bought into the lie really in a big way. And others of us realize that you know humanity is a lot more than the stuff that you have. It's what you have inside. And we're learning that lesson again and again and again. And it falls on your generation, if you read the book, The Fourth Turning, to be the hero generation and say, I'm not going to look at what I don't have. I'm going to look at what I do have. And what I do have is youth. I have a lot of energy. I have great cognitive skills. And we're going to figure this thing out. And your generation is the one that's going to build it back. It's not going to be the big elite megalomaniacs that talk like they own us and they think they do. But no one really owns you in the ultimate scheme of things. So got a bit philosophical, but I wanted to get that out because I do believe we're going to go down hard. But I think we're going to come back better. But better. That was actually... I was going to say it's 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 funny that you that you went down this path and I was thinking about asking this question but I'll I'll ask you do you think the American dream is still alive? I don't know how to answer that so I'll just move around it a bit. I think the American dream yeah, is changing okay. as I just outlined. I think we're a lot of the younger yeah. people of your generation are questioning well you know, if I get the white picket fence in the house, and I think it's good to have a house. I mean, I really do think that is part of the American dream, and I don't think that's left. And I think a lot of people, as you mentioned early on in this conversation, that hey, look, I'm young, ambitious, I'm doing everything right, and I can't afford a house. 
And, you know, so I, I think that part still exists. But I also think there's a lot of question marks. I mean, most of my daughters are millennials. And what I've observed and read and seem to fit is that a lot of them are more interested in experience rather than ownership. Like, for example, let's just yeah. say this is corny, but it makes the point. In my neighborhood, we could have one lawnmower for like 10 houses, right? So we just share. We pull our money and, you know, you're going to save money and we pass it around on the weekend or whatever. No one thinks like that in my era. It's always you have to have your own, you know, lawnmower. You, you wouldn't think in community terms or an experience. So the millennials much rather in many cases have the experience of whitewater rafting rather than owning a raft, okay? Or uh, walking yeah. through the Grand Canyon rather than having a condo. I'm making this kind of stupid. But you get the point that the experience is more valuable to them than having another possession. And I think that's very important. Uh, and, of course, it's an individual choice. But I think that shift. So I'm trying to answer the question, does the American dream still exist? Yes, but it's changing to today's conditions, and people are revaluing what's valuable. I'd rather have this $2,000 vacation where I experience jumping out of an airplane, river rafting down the Grand Canyon, walking through the Zion Park, and having uh, food prepared by the greatest chef in Arizona than. Yeah. Having that thing that I just bought that uh, I'm not going to pay any attention to six months from now. No, I appreciate it. And it was not, it was not meant to be an easy question. We were just going down that path. So I thought, I, I thought I'd drop it anyway. Um, I want to, I want to pull, you know, we didn't even go into what you're known for silver guru, silver. We didn't speak about silver at all. So I want to get some insight out of you on that. Cause that really is, that's, that's your core theme. That's like everything. That's your persona. That. So we can we can talk about that a little bit, and then um, and then I'll do some like rapid fire, just career questions to pull out some stuff from from your career. Um, so let's let's just talk about silver briefly. So we're talking about precious metals. We're talking about you know maybe uh, looking to gold as some portion of your portfolio, just as a safe bet when economies are not so certain. No one talks about silver. I don't know anything about silver at all. So what what is what is the the play for silver? What why would it be silver versus gold? What is the correlation between silver and gold, if any? I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, this time of year is all about change. Whether your teams, your systems, or your Q4 to Q1 shifts, a CRM platform is a critical tool, keeping your business connected throughout all of that change. And HubSpot. It's constantly working to make its platform more connected than ever before to help you with that change with brand new features. Get into details about what makes your customers tick with custom behavioral events. Track site behavior and understand your customers' buying habits all within the HubSpot platform. This is built-in intent data right into HubSpot. And if you're looking to find more ways to keep your data clean and have a centralized system, the all-new Operations Hub Enterprise gives you the ability to curate data sets for all users, meaning even faster and more consistent reporting. Learn more about how a HubSpot CRM platform can connect your business at HubSpot.com. Well, there's an 85% correlation, which means that uh, 
they're highly correlated. So when gold goes up, silver goes up, gold goes down, silver goes down, and you could say the reverse. Nothing's 100% correlated. So that's a very high correlation. So the argument, well, silver only does good during these times and gold does these times. Today, it's rather irrelevant because currently there's that high correlation. So if there's a depression and gold goes up, silver most likely will also. Or there's a hyperinflation, silver will go up, gold most likely will as well. Silver is, um, you know, I was studied, as I said early on, and pretty much a gold bug and pretty gold-centric. And then when the Hunt Brothers situation took place, it really raised my curiosity. Why silver? Why not gold? And they did have gold. They had gold stocks and they had some gold, but they really were interested in the silver market. And so I started looking at it and realized the importance of honest money and silver plays a role in that. So, you know, one of my earliest uh, things that I wrote for the public was the 10 rules of silver investing. And of course, looking at the rather doomy side, but realistic of uh, empires and the collapse of such, uh, the first rule of my silver rule, 10 rules of silver investing was one, no one wants to be a prophet of doom. But in the unlikely event of a total financial collapse, silver will be the money of last resort, not gold. Because gold will be too high unit value for everyday purchases, whereas silver could be used in daily transactions. So that's the paraphrased rule number one. So silver really has been money more often under more transactions than gold ever has. If you want to verify that, go buy a bag of uh, Canadian silver coins, you know, 70%. So I know... Canada changed the percentage of silver in our coins over the years. The U.S. didn't. But um, regardless, there are, you know, silver coins still available for investment purposes or monetary value purposes in Canada, in the U.S., and in other nations because at one time we were basically on the silver standard, more so than a gold standard, believe it or not. So I think that sums it up. I could go on and on. I mean, you could find my other lectures Silver's got two components. Yeah. One is industrial, one is monetary. They're both uh, increasing uh, rapidly these last couple of years. I think that trend will continue. And I think that silver is um, the better uh, speculation, but I think gold is required as kind of an anchor, sort of like buying the Dow Jones. And you might buy the NASDAQ mm -hmm. index, but if you are, especially if you're older, You'd have a higher percentage in the Dow than you would in the NASDAQ because of the volatility. But I think having them both is better than having just one or the other. Amazing. Okay, that's that's useful. And that sort of, you, you actually just very succinctly made it very clear exactly why people would even look to silver. Because I don't think that's something that is actually talked about quite often. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, Okay, so I want to ask some rapid fire. Before we pivot, what I wanted to get out of you was uh, I wanted to just understand what a, what where where is David Morgan going next? What's next in, in your career with your brand, with the work you're doing? What excites you? And then secondly, where do people find you, reach out to you, social and website? Well, what excites me is the fact that I've been able to help a few people, maybe more than I know. I don't want to be egotistical, but... I have woken up people, you know, I do the investment circuit and there've been people that came up and thanked me and that's always very rewarding. See, and that's an intangible. They didn't pay me any silver or fiat. They just came up and the human to human said, Hey, I want to thank you. That see, that has real value to me. 
that heart to heart connection, looking in the eye and saying, Hey, thanks. You helped my life. That's, that's very meaningful. Uh, I'm going to continue on as long as I'm breathing until this thing gets to what I consider the end, which means, you know, the WEF fails miserably and uh, we, the people have uh, more control of our lives. So I'm looking at that not too far away. I think it's imminent. I wouldn't say imminent. I'll, I'll retract that. I think it's within a couple, three years. So I plan. Okay. My goal really personal is at the top of the near as the metals do better and better on a paper price basis. I probably will try to sell the website and the business kind of do a Doug Casey. I'll still do interviews once a month or something and write occasionally. But, you know, I'm older. I'm looking out a few years and like, yeah, I want to retire. You know, I want to just, you know, cash it in, read more, walk more talk less <laughs> just, uh, relax a little bit so that's a long range goal what was the follow-up question it was uh where... no it's just where do oh, people reach, reach you so your social uh, and your Thank website you. yeah yeah the best place is the main website which is the get our free newsletter if you're interested in uh the paid service the premium service go to the subscribe button if you're interested in books pull down the book tab and I took consultations off there, Scott. I just was doing too much. And the consultations, as much as I enjoy talking to people, just got to be more of a distraction for me. Uh, you know, I get in the groove writing, and then I have to give up that zone that I'm in and take a call or make yeah. a call. So now I've eliminated I that. Yeah. And like when I'm in the zone, I can just keep writing. Amazing. Okay. So, uh, a couple, a couple questions to close out. What, what was the biggest challenge you've had in your career? How did you overcome it? The biggest it? challenge in my career was having to uh, speak truth to power in my aircraft career. I basically ended my own career speaking truth to a very top-level group of uh, engineers and test pilots and even uh, high-ranking uh, military people. And they all knew I was speaking the truth. And uh, I was kind of made the scapegoat. And I had to make a decision within a matter of seconds. Do I speak truth to power and lose my job? Or do I hold it in and become a subservient uh, yes man for the rest of my career? Very tough decision. Still could get emotional thinking about it. So that was number one. What was the other question? No. So how did you, so how did you overcome that? Like, how did you, how did you think through well, that I had process? to make that instant decision and I decided I'd rather be true to myself than true to some ideology. So I'd rather walk as good, a free good. man, uh, metaphorically speaking, with my own integrity intact, knowing that my career job, everything that I put all this effort into and had, you know, climbed the ladder, so to speak, could and most likely would be thrown out the window, and it was. And uh, wasn't easy, but, you know, looking back, it pushed me to where I am now, where I could do what I've always been passionate about, which is the markets. And I had, uh, you know, that kind of clean slate, like we talked about early in this conversation, where you are perhaps, or a lot of your generation, it's like, you know, there aren't a lot of prospects. What can I do on my own? That entrepreneurial spirit, you know, I'm going to digress here for a minute. I know we're going maybe too long on time, but you know, early on, no, no, the no, idea we're not. Of the American good, dream wasn't go get educated and get a good job working for somebody. It was, what do you want to do? 
And what do you want to do to contribute to society? What business do you want to start? Well, I don't want to start a business. I want to work for somebody. Okay, that's fine. That's your choice. I fully support that. But you got to teach these younger people, or in my opinion, strong one, you know, you can be anything. You know, now look, if you're four foot eight, you're not going to be an NBA star. I get that, but you get the idea. There's too much limitation and you're in a cog in the wheel. We need to turn that upside down. Like you are a smart individual that can make something happen. What do you want to make happen in the world? You know, and there's a lot of people that do that. And sometimes it's real simple stuff. It's like making a really good oat breakfast. I mean, there's a gal, I think her name was Mandy, and I ran into her very long. She's got a going business. It rocks. But I met her when she was making those things out of her garage, right? And I love that kind of spirit, that people follow their passion and start at a low level and become successful. And even more important, people that have a passion and start at a low level, and it doesn't succeed. And they give up. They don't give up. They pull themselves off, dust themselves off, and do another one. And maybe that one doesn't succeed. It's not about being a millionaire that's so important, although, you know, it's nice. It's what you learn on the journey to becoming a millionaire that's most valuable. Good. Very good. Very good. I appreciate that. Um, If you could pick one person in your life that was the most influential or taught you something, uh, who was that person and what did they teach you? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say Harry Brown, Brown with an E, ran for president of the United States twice on the libertarian ticket. What he taught me is that being a gentleman is not a weakness. That being calm and not raising your voice is actually a strength. Being a very good listener is more important than being a great talker. And giving the ability for the person to make up their own mind by presenting the argument in a way that's not argumentative, so that the people can determine for themselves that their logic is invalid and come to a conclusion with a gentle conversational tone that enlightens people. I would say Harry Brown, in my opinion, was an enlightened being. He would discount that. But having the honor of spending some of uh, his latter years personally with him, I would say that's probably the most influential human being that I have had the honor of knowing. And, you know, on an egotistical or non-egotistical manner, I would like to consider the fact that, or consider the idea that I could be as valuable to someone uh, in my lifetime as he was to me. Where would you, um, or rather, what would be a source? It uh, could be a book or a podcast, anything that has impacted you that you'd recommend people go read or oh, listen boy, to. Oh boy, that's really tough. Is it anything, anything that, anything that is on that shelf yeah. behind you? Well, there's so many <laughs> yeah. that I listen to. I mean, I look at philosophy. I look at monetary issues, of course. I look at the mainstream news. I look at the left quite a bit because I want to know how they think or are reacting or what's a fallacy. A lot of them are big-hearted people that have a very emotional tie to doing the right thing. They just don't understand in my studied view how the economy really works or how a sound economy works. So what would I recommend? Um, 
Scott, I just don't know. I'm going to say it in a general way. I think the most important thing that I've learned and would recommend is the old adage from the Oracle of Delphi, to thine own self be true. And so I would pursue something that has more to do with not yourself in a selfish way, but in a knowledge way where you can examine your true self. And I know that's overused in the New Age movement. I'm not a New Ager. But the idea of what is the most valuable part of your life, and I'll sum it up this way, even though I can't give a strong, you should watch this YouTube or you should read this book. But the idea of to thine own self be true is the meaning of life. Well, we all want to know that. I think that's a question everybody ponders. And I was given the answer some time ago in a men's group that I attend or attended at the time. And I really liked the answer. And the more I thought about it, the more it resonated with me. And the answer is, what's the meaning of life? And the answer is, it's the meaning you give it. So if you're spending your time on a video game or watching TV or doing some something that may seem fun or whatever, and it's an individual thing, believe me, everybody's path is different. But what meaning do you give it? If your meaning in life is to change the system from a elite banking cabal to the people having the power of money, which is basically summation of my, my purpose, the reason I get up every day, the reason I feel so alive and passionate, but that's me. That's me. There are people that are just as passionate about making surfboards and contribute greatly to the surfing industry. So I'm not trying to make any one better than the other, but the meaning of life is the meaning you give it. Whatever you do, if it's tiddlywinks championships that you're passionate about it, I applaud you. I don't like the idea that we're in a dress rehearsal, that I'm going to do it next week, next month, next year. As soon as I get this degree, I'll get the good job. Oh, it wasn't the good job. We'll have to get another degree to do it. All of that stuff that stands in your way. The best way to do it is start, do it, do it wrong, and learn from your mistakes and keep moving on. And when you get knocked down, dust off, get up and do it again. I think perseverance is one of the keys to a strong, motivated, and industrious life. It's balance. Too much money? Yeah. Not enough? Yeah. So you want to balance, and I'm just talking money, but it's your total self, your being. Uh, the right foods, the right amount of exercise. Don't overdo anything. So let me be succinct. Moderation in all things. Be true to yourself. The meaning of life is what you put into it. You usually do get out what you give. Giving is more important than receiving. The best things in life truly are free. And the value of friendship and family cannot be overvalued. They are priceless. Well, that was the best answer to what book have you read lately? <laughs> I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was very good. So you, you, kind of, you kind of just got all the other questions that I was going to ask you, and you nailed them all at once. But I'll, I'll, I'll go through them quickly as well. I'll go through them. So if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would that thing be? Never give up. Never give up. Okay. And then last question. Um, what does success mean to you? Being content in yourself. I think it's uh, having that inner peace that you don't need to worry what anyone else thinks, whether you're successful or not, because of your innermost self, you know, 
you've done it. You're there. And that doesn't mean you can rest, but it just means you can be at ease. And that, let's say, that uh, vibration, if you want to call it that, it can be pervasive. I mean, the idea, and this isn't proven by empirical evidence, I never was a rounder, but it's been said that someone of the ability, or I don't even know the right adjective to use, of a Mother Teresa, you know, short little thing that she was could walk into a room and everyone could feel her presence. That's vibration. That's spiritual maturity. That's the, I wouldn't say pinnacle of humanity, but it certainly does resonate with almost anyone that has any idea of who she was and what she did, what she accomplished and her selflessness that she possessed, put her at a level that very few have experienced. And I would say that would be an idea to consider. Amazing. David, thank you very much. That's all I got. That was, that was incredible. I really, really appreciate the time. That was really good. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed 
on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 